This is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and yes, we need your help. We need to raise $110,000 by the end of June, and we're counting on you to pitch in. For details, check out our website, LOE.org, or call 1-617-629-3638. Please help and give what you can. And thank you. The Brazilian Congress recently passed a bill that would reduce protection of forests in the Amazon. So activists appealed to President Dilma Rousseff. Now, you had everybody from the Brazilian Academy of Sciences to literally the Brazilian equivalent of Bugs Bunny saying, veto this bill, we're against more deforestation in the Amazon, and this bill is going to cause that. Steve Schwartzman is director of tropical forest policy for the Environmental Defense Fund. Environmental groups, scientists, and a groundswell of the Brazilian public all called for the president to veto the entire bill. In the end, she struck down 12 individual clauses of the new code with a line-item veto. The most controversial clause would have given amnesty to all landowners that illegally deforested before 2008. President Dilma modified the bill to give only that amnesty to small landowners. But Steve Schwartzman says if any illegally deforested areas are still being used for agriculture, they wouldn't have to be reforested. The best analyses that I've seen are suggesting that upwards of kind of 90 percent of those illegally deforested lands from before 2008 are really not going to be required to do anything. Also at issue, the green corridors along the many rivers of the Amazon basin that are crucial for species to travel between pockets of rainforest surrounded by soy and cattle. Congress called for just 30 feet of forest land near rivers, but President Dilma increased that to more than 300 feet. Now all of the president's changes will go back to Brazil's Congress, giving the legislators the chance to accept or override the line-item vetoes. Observers say not much is likely to happen with the Forest Code legislation until after the more than 50,000 representatives of government, non-governmental organizations, and others gather in Brazil late in June for the Rio Plus 20 Earth Summit. Well, in advance of the upcoming Rio Plus 20 conference, William Muma has published an article in the journal Climate Policy that outlines a different approach to the challenge of climate change. He's a professor of environmental international relations at Tufts University and a lead author of several climate science chapters for reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He says an alternative approach is necessary in a world that has plenty of economic problems and different national interests. Professor Muma, thanks for coming into the studio. Thank you. It's been 20 years since people gathered in Rio, uh, said we should have a climate change treaty. We got a treaty. The U.S. ratified it. And nothing has really happened since Rio. What went wrong? What should we have been doing all this time in terms of negotiating a climate treaty? Well, the treaty as it's designed is really a pollution control treaty. And that leads negotiators to talk about burden sharing. Now, think about this for a moment. If I'm a negotiator and I go to a meeting on doing something about climate change and I come home and say to my government and my people, I have brought a burden to share with you, that is not exactly a formula for success. No. And in fact, the emissions are the result of the choices that we've made to build our economies by burning fossil fuels. So what we really have is a development problem. And what we need is a development treaty to address it. So what should we do instead in terms of developing a development treaty, as you say? Well, I think what we really need to do is shift the focus away from where the commas go and, uh, and who should do what and blaming other countries for the emissions 
and recognize that we are arguing a false dichotomy. We are saying that somehow uh, more carbon dioxide emissions from burning more fossil fuels equals more economic well-being. In this paper, we quote five world leaders, and they all say things like, we can't do more because it will cut our development potential. It would cost our jobs and damage our industry. Now, those comments come from people from developed countries and developing countries. Our own George Bush I, who was at Rio 20 years ago, basically said, our lifestyle is not up for negotiation. So basically, everybody is seeing more emissions as tied to more economic growth. And that's not really true. Most of Western Europe produces as much GDP per person as we do. They do it with half the emissions that we do. How would you frame this as an opportunity for all countries instead of a burden to be avoided? How would it be an opportunity? The opportunity to make something new, to develop whole new industries, would transform the economies of the world into something that is far more productive. And if we actually set as a goal, as this paper suggests, uh, the provision of clean energy services for all, that's a huge market. It's an enormous market. That would probably keep our economies running for the next 50 years. That would get us over the climate problem, and I think it would also get us over our economic problem. What's the role of big international agreements in dealing with climate change, in your view? Well, if we look at what the current treaty did was it got us on track. It basically said the governments of the world agree this is a huge problem and we should address it. So it's, it's motivational, it's inspirational perhaps, but it's not going to get the job done. Uh, the job is going to be done at a much more local and regional level. It's not going to be done by dictates from on top. So things like the RED, which is uh, reducing emissions from degradation and deforestation, finding a way to get money in the hands of people to keep them from chopping down trees in the tropics, those kind of elements are what you're talking yes, about. Yes, those, and, and those may come in a treaty, but they don't need to be coming in a treaty. If you look at it right now, there's a huge amount of money coming from uh, the Prince of Wales and his foundation, money coming from Norway, not through the treaty, but separate from the treaty. And each of those is in the billions of dollars range. You know, it's big. We have the World Bank putting uh, 7 or $8 billion a year into various kinds of climate-focused development agreements. This system did not exist until fairly recently. And so we keep thinking in terms of this traditional diplomacy when, in fact, we're into a new diplomacy, which goes beyond just the role of national governments. The Rio Plus 20 Summit? Yes. At the end of June. What's your best hope for what might happen there? I guess my best hope actually rests with the side events and not with the governmental portion of the meeting. That is, there will be a lot of really good ideas that will come out of that. Uh, the governments will meet for their three days. They will try to paper over the failure to get a climate treaty, among other things. And they will try to talk about some new, new way of looking at things that will make what we haven't accomplished not look so bad. There will be some governments that will be out there pushing hard. At the Durban climate meeting, for the first time, African countries lined up with small island states and basically said, we're not buying this argument that we have to wait around until the big polluters go first. We really need to see action soon. And so I expect that the blocking countries, the United States, China, India, that are trying to uh, undermine progress on this, uh, some of the oil-producing countries, will find themselves in a minority there. 
William Mumaz, Professor of International Environmental Policy at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Thank you so much for coming in, Professor. Thank you very much for having me. Just ahead, searching for lost wells and lost moose. Keep listening to Living on Earth. 